Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning as we turn to God's Word, I invite you to turn to the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. But having hit the midway point in the Gospel, we're taking a brief break for a topical series on biblical worship for the next seven or or eight weeks or so. Now my intention in this series is not to go through our worship order element by element. I did a video series on that last summer, and if you find yourself asking questions like, why do we have a confession of sin, or why do we confess the Apostles' Creed together, I encourage you to look back at that series of brief videos. You can find them on our website. Just go to the Worship tab, and then to Philosophy of Worship, and you'll find them all there. But my goal in this series is more to focus on the principles that guide us in our worship. You know, the very habit of gathering every Sunday morning is a good habit. It's a means that God uses to shape us more and more in His image. But like any habit, it's easy for us to slip into the routine of just showing up, going through the motions, or perhaps of letting our traditions or our preferences guide us more so than Scripture itself. And so I think it's important from time to time to look back at God's Word and ask ourselves, why is it that we come together on Sunday mornings, and what are we called to do, and how does God call us to do it? And that's really what I am looking at in this series. My plan is to organize this series around a set of questions, questions of who, why, what, how, when, and with whom are we to worship. And this morning, we want to begin with the question that's at the very center of worship, It's the question of who. Who is this God that we gather to praise week by week? Of course, it would be utterly impossible to give an answer to that question in one sermon. All of Scripture is revealing to us the character of God. But in Isaiah chapter 40, we're invited to come and behold our God. And so I want to begin there. If you would join me, we're going to read beginning in verse 9 down to the end of Isaiah chapter 40. Here as we read God's word. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the paths of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 
Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for, for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skill for craftsmen to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I shall be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint." Father, how we thank you for this passage of your word. Would you use it in our hearts now? to strengthen us and marvel at the glory of your name. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, expectations and reality don't always match. It's very frequent that we have expectations that we just don't live up to what we had hoped for. For years, I led a field trip for seventh graders to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And if you've ever been to the museum, you know that one of its key displays is the Gems and Gemstones Hall. And at the final exhibit of that hall is the Hope Diamond, which many believe to be the most valuable diamond in the world. But I would often tell the students, one of the largest diamonds in the world is waiting at the end of the gems and gemstones display. And so they'd be walking through, and of course on their way there's all sorts of much less valuable crystals that are huge, three and four foot hall crystals, and they think, wow, and the largest one's at the end of the hall. But of course, the most valuable diamond in the world is about two inches in diameter. It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but it was regularly very underwhelming to what the students were expecting. Of course, other times our expectations might be surpassed. Maybe we weren't expecting something all that great, or maybe something is just glorious enough that it is more than we had imagined. I think back to my first trip to Glacier National Park and think there was no way that my expectations were prepared for the grandeur of what I saw there. But the reality is anyone and anything on earth can be oversold compared to their real worth and value. The same, however, cannot be said of our God. 
because His greatness so far exceeds human language's ability to capture who He is. And He is so much greater than the human mind can begin to comprehend that we will spend all eternity gazing upon Him and never exhausting the depths of His majesty. John Calvin famously put it this way. He said, The majesty of God is too high to be scaled up to by mortals who creep like worms on the earth. And yet, despite his majestic greatness, God has revealed himself to us that we might know who he is. And so to begin this series on worship, our goal this morning is to gaze on the glory of our God as he's revealed to us in his word. Here in Isaiah chapter 40, God began by announcing comfort to Jerusalem. That was in verse 1. We didn't read those verses together. But he announced that he was going to forgive Israel's sins and end her warfare and suffering. And this comfort would come about when God himself came to them. In verse 9, Jerusalem, the, the city of God's dwelling among his people, is commanded to go up on a high mountain and announce this good news and summon the cities of Judah to behold their God. God is coming to you, Israel. But what is he like? Who is this God who is going to come and forgive your sins and end your warfare? That's the topic for the remainder of this chapter. And Isaiah spends verses 12 through 26 focusing on God's majestic greatness. That's the first thing he focuses on. And over the course of these verses, Isaiah highlights the infinite extent of God's power, of his wisdom, and of his sovereignty in creating, preserving, and guiding all things. And I hope you noticed as we read these verses, and I hope you might think back on the simple beauty of Isaiah's language here. There's no hyperbolic language There's no cheap piling up of superlatives like he's the bestest and the greatest and the biggest and the mostest amazing. He doesn't do that. Isaiah just asks questions, one question after another, inviting us to compare the greatest things we know in our experience to the majesty of God. He asks, which of you has held the oceans in the palm of your hand? Now, you've probably stood on the edge of the ocean, and you, you can picture its vastness, and you know how much of the ocean would fit in the palm of your hand. According to some satellite imagery lately, some scientists did an estimate that there are 352 quintillion gallons of water in the oceans of the earth. That's 352 million trillions of gallons of water in the ocean, and God holds them in the palm of his hand. Well, if the oceans are vast, how about the the galaxies, the sky, another thing in its vastness that is so great to our minds? And Isaiah says that he measures the galaxies with a span, the space of his fingers. Now, I look at my hand, and I I can probably measure maybe a dodgeball, maybe a loaf of bread. God is measuring the galaxies of the universe in the span of his fingers. Or how about the nations of the earth? I love the, the imagery here. Isaiah says the nations of the earth are like a drop from a bucket or dust on the scales. The nations of the earth are commonly the greatest displays of power we can think of. For, for Israel, it was maybe the Assyrian army or the Babylonian army. And you imagine the display of power that that was. 
For us, maybe it's the growing strength and ability of the armies of China, or maybe it's video footage of Russia testing its Satan missile, which can deliver nuclear payloads around the world, and we have this picture of of power and majesty that terrifies us. Isaiah says that's like dust on the scales. And you know what dust on the scales is because none of us wakes up in the morning and weighs ourselves and then says, yeah, I think I'm going to deduct a quarter pound since I didn't dust the scale yesterday. Or a drop from the bucket. No one, none of us is washing the car and we see a little bead of water trickling down the bucket and we bemoan the loss of that little bead of water. No, these things are nothingness. They are emptiness. And the greatest powers of this world, verse 17 says, are accounted by him as less than nothing and mere emptiness. That is the scale of the majesty of God. But God is not just sheer power. He's also infinite in his knowledge and perfect in his wisdom. Isaiah says in verse 13, who has measured the spirit of God? We're not talking about a measuring tape there. The word there is talking about containing or bringing under our control or guidance the spirit of God. What man shows God his counsel? Did God consult any man saying, hey, I'm going to create an earth. What do you think I should do? Did someone teach him justice or give him understanding he did not have? The questions are meant to be questions of absurdity. No one has given God knowledge for his wisdom and his justice and understanding are complete and perfect. And God exercises his power and his wisdom in perfect sovereignty. He created all things. Isaiah says he is the creator of the ends of the earth. And he sustains all things. Look at verse 26. Lift up your eyes, Isaiah says. Look at the heavens, the sun and the stars. And you've probably been on maybe a vacation or a camping trip, one of those places that's far away from cities and light when you can really see the stars and you can't even make it an inch across the sky without losing count of the number of the stars. And Isaiah says, God brings them out one by one. He brings out their hosts by number. He calls each one by name sustaining all creation by his sovereign providence. And not only does he create all things and sustain all things, he guides everything. No one on earth can thwart his plans. The princes of the earth seem to be able to do whatever they want in their strength. But verse 23 and 24 says he makes the princes to be nothing and they're scarcely even planted on their seats before God blows on them and they wither. His will is done completely. When I read these verses, it reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot contain it. Or, or I, think of, I think of Job responding after God revealed himself from the whirlwind. And Job says, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Perhaps it was passages like these that led one author about 50 years ago to publish a a short pamphlet under the title, Your God is Too Small. And what he meant was not that our God was too small, but that our idea of God is too small. Because how often do we begin to think that we have captured the fullness of God in our minds or domesticate this God to someone who meets our needs and answers our prayers and serves us? And the answer is no. 
The God who summons us to worship is not here to serve us. He is not summarily captured in some inspirational Christian artwork. This God is high and exalted and lifted up. He is the Holy One, as Isaiah puts it in verse 25. That is, He is the one set apart from us in the blazing purity of His infinite being, power, wisdom, truth, and righteousness. This is the majesty and the magnitude and the greatness of God which Isaiah highlights. Of course, such infinite greatness ought to terrify us in and of itself. How can you and I stand in the presence of such an exalted one? But Isaiah tells us that there's more to this God whom we're called to behold. This is the second thing that Isaiah focuses on. You see it beginning in verse 11. God is drawing near in the strength of His might, but why is He drawing near? What is He going to do when He draws near? Well, with the strength of His might, He is going to tend His flock like a shepherd. He's going to carry and gather His lambs in His arms and gently lead those who are with young. In other words, if we're going to truly behold our God, we need to see both His awesome power and His tender care. The strength of His arm and the gentleness of his touch. Because any strong man can use his strength to oppress or to protect, to dominate or to carry love and keep safe. And God promises Jerusalem that his arm will come in strength to redeem them, to lead them, and to comfort them. Isaiah goes on to expound on this theme in verses 27 to 31. In 27, Isaiah asks, how can we think that our way is hidden from God or that he is failing to protect us or bring us the justice we need in our distress? That's impossible. He says God is everlasting. He's not bound by time. He's the creator of the ends of the earth, so he's not bound by space. And he is perfect in power and understanding, so he's not limited by any ability or lack of wisdom. And what does God do and use this infinite extent of his ability and majesty? Well, his desire is that his might might nourish and strengthen his people. You see that verse 29, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. You know, in our world, power tends to either distance itself from weakness or to dominate the weak. When we see someone who has wealth or power, who genuinely engages the poor and the needy, we admire that person. It's different than what we often expect. But when the Bible zeroes in on the character of God, the most powerful being of all, this is the theme we hear over and over. He is mighty and all-powerful, and He employs that power in the tender care for the weak and wounded sinners. For any one of us who know our sin, who know our weakness, who know our discouragement, our vulnerability, our need, for any one of us who feels more like a wounded baby bird than an eagle soaring on wings, behold your God who renews the strength of those who wait on Him. And this theme is seen all through Scripture. Just think about a couple of other examples. Psalm 113 starts this way. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord who is high above the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God 
who is seated on high and raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Or think about God's own self-revelation in Exodus 3. He says, I am who I am, independent, self-existent, eternal, unchangeable. And I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, who will bring you up out of your affliction, out of Egypt. Or think of, of Exodus 33 and 34 when God reveals his glory to Moses and he says, Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. He is high and holy. But then the Lord comes and begins to declare his character and, and how does God talk of himself? He says, I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we could keep going, but do you see how again and again and again when Scripture highlights the character of our God and who God is, it is the exalted glory, awesome might, sovereign power, employed in steadfast love, tender care, and merciful redemption for His people. And it's the splendor of God's glory that is found in the sum total of these attributes that were shown again and again in God's Word. And so this is our God. This is the God that Isaiah invites his people to behold, the God who is going to show up to redeem his people. But if I can step back then in our last few minutes together, perhaps we can ask this. If this is who our God is, how does that shape our understanding of worship? So let me suggest three ways this vision of God shapes our worship. First, Worship is not merely an activity we engage in, but is a response to beholding our God. Maybe I'll put it another way. We have not worshipped simply because we have shown up and sung some songs and prayed some prayers and listened to a sermon. We have worshipped when together we consider God in His majesty and then respond by giving Him the praise, honor, and glory that He deserves. I want you to consider with me a pattern that flows all through Scripture. It's a pattern that when people behold the glory of God, their response immediately is worship. Exodus 33, Moses describes the tent of meeting where God would meet with Moses and the pillar of cloud. You remember the pillar of cloud and of fire that, that represented God's presence that guided the people through the wilderness. And in verse 10, Moses says this, he says, When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent of meeting, all the people would rise up and worship. Or think of Exodus 34, when God passed before Moses and declared his glory, verse 8 says, And Moses quickly bowed down his head to the earth and worshiped. Or how about Joshua chapter 5 on the edge of the promised land when the angel of the Lord comes and reveals himself with drawn sword as the commander of the armies of our God. And when Joshua realizes who it is, Joshua 5 says immediately he fell down and worshiped. Or how about in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus walked over the water to his disciples in the boat in their fear and revealed his glory to them, when he got in the boat, immediately it says the disciples worshipped. 
Or how about Revelation chapter 4 where John sees a vision of God seated on His throne with the four living creatures and the 24 elders gathered around them. And in verse 9 it says that whenever the living creatures gave glory to God, the 24 elders immediately fell down and worshipped, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. So do, do you see the pattern? Again and again, worship is the immediate, genuine response to seeing God and His glory. And that is why week by week, when we come together on, on Sunday morning, our service begins with God calling us to worship by singing the doxology or, or reading from the Psalms or hearing the choir sing of the character of God as our attention is drawn to Him and then our worship is the response to seeing our God. So that's the first application to worship. Genuine worship is a heartfelt response to beholding the character of God. Second, second application is this. Notice how it is beholding God that brings the source of comfort and hope for God's people. Isaiah 40 began by declaring comfort to Jerusalem. When you begin to ask yourself, what exactly would bring comfort and hope to a people faced with judgment, destruction, and exile because of their sin and idolatry? What would bring hope when the mightiest empire of the known world at the time holds complete power over you and your city is reduced to a smoldering pile of bricks? What brings comfort and hope then? The vision of God and who He is. The reminder of who God is, that He sits above the circle of the earth, that He reduces princes to nothing, that He is sovereign in power and perfect in wisdom, that He is coming and that He promises to use the might of His arm to gather His flock and redeem His people and lead His sheep. That's what brings comfort. On my vacation a week and a half ago, we were down in North Carolina where we rode out Ian, which was a tropical storm where it hit us in the Outer Banks. And the day after the storm, we went out on the beach and we were, we were watching the waves still turbulent and stirred up by the storm. And, and as we were there on the beach watching it, one wave just crashed far harder and farther up the beach than we thought. And it rolled my youngest around in, in the waves there on, on the beach. And of course, it's a, a fearful thing when a wave tumbles you around. So what did my youngest need? She needed to feel the strong arms of her parents reaching down, picking her up, and holding her close. And that's what gave her assurance and comfort when she was knocked down. And it's the same for us. When life knocks us down and tumbles us around, when sin and suffering throws us to the ground, Scripture doesn't offer us pat promises or stoic platitudes. It brings us to God. And shows us who he is. And as we come out of the busyness and the pain, the discouragement and the anxiety, the mundanity and the burdens of our week, our time of worship is not just a break from the kids who get to go to the nursery or time with people because we've been lonely. No, our time of worship is a time to behold our God and who he is. And it's a time to remember this is our God, the God of might who employs his strong arm to redeem us and tenderly care for us. And that is the good news that sustains us and strengthens us and renews us as we come to worship week after week. So remember the second application, the comfort and hope of worship 
comes from beholding who God is. I'll have one more. Finally, I think it is important to state that beholding our God is only comforting and encouraging because of Christ. Because, see, this is not the first vision of God that Isaiah has given us in his book. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah also saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe, filling the temple. You remember that vision that Isaiah had. And when Isaiah saw that vision of God, he did not run towards God with joy. He cried out in terror, Woe is me! I am an unclean man with unclean lips. For any man who is willing to be honest with himself, faced with the holiness of God, is immediately aware of his unworthiness due to sin. Isaiah's vision of God leaves him undone and lost. And the same it should be for any one of us if we behold God on our own. But in Christ... In Christ, we behold God come in the flesh who can be approached, who is gentle and invites us to himself as we heard from Matthew 11 in our assurance of salvation today. In God come in the flesh, Jesus Christ is the one who goes to the cross and sheds his blood that our sin might be cleansed. In Christ is the one who sends his spirit to make us new and bring us into union with him by faith. And so it is in Christ that we can behold God, not in terror, but with joyful awe. The Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, Christ being incarnate makes the sight of the deity not formidable, but delightful. Another author, Mark Jones, put it this way. He said, the true and the living God is too much for us to bear He is simply too much for us in every conceivable way. However, that the Son became flesh makes our human nature lovely to God and God lovely to us. In other words, each week, as we come into the presence of God, as we come to behold His character, as we come to worship Him, the vision of His glory ought to be another reminder for us every week of how much we have to treasure Christ. Because apart from Christ, we cannot come into his presence. Apart from Christ, his presence is not encouraging and comforting. But with Christ, with Christ, holy terror has become good news. It has become a source of hope and comfort and a spark of joyful worship. And so this morning, as we come to a conclusion... I want to remind you of our goal this morning to gaze on the glory of God that we might see who it is that we worship and in seeing him that we might respond with genuine worship giving him the glory and honor and praise that he deserves so my prayer is that that would be our natural response this morning and each week as we come to worship our God let's pray our great an awesome God. You've reminded us this morning of who you are in your infinite majesty and how I pray that in seeing you and being reminded of who you are, our hearts would respond by falling down to worship. But how I pray that as we remember who you are and are reminded of your character, that we would treasure Christ all the more this morning, realizing that our only hope of coming to you 
And the very fact that we can respond with joy in your presence is because of Christ and what he has done for us. And so may we come this morning, may we go from here this morning delighting in Christ, worshiping your name, giving you the glory you deserve. This is our prayer, Father, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.